for the quitters. Game quitters. Listen up, quitters. Game quitters. It's the Game Quitters Podcast with Camadare and Jason Wellwood. On today's show, special guest Pete Martston explains why addiction waits for no man or woman. It waits for no one. Knock, knock. Who's there? It's Camadare. Wait, I, I don't understand. Where's the punchline? What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Game Quarters Podcast. I'm your host, Camadare, and I'm here today with a special guest, Pete Marston. Pete, what's going on? Not too much, man. Thank you for having me on your podcast. This is, uh, this is quite an honor. And I know this is your first podcast ever, so we're, we're breaking you in. Yes. Awesome. So just to give everyone kind of a, a brief background, Pete is someone who's in long-term recovery. Uh, he's dealt with you know, drugs and porn, and you know, he's, he's really been through this himself. Uh, and now he's an entrepreneur. I know he's you know, big on habits, and, and we'll dive a lot into that today. Uh, but Pete, just you know, quickly, where does your story around addiction begin? My story around addiction begins... It, you know, Cam, I watched your that video the other day and I shared it on Facebook and, and I watched that and I'm like, oh my God, my story is very similar to yours. So growing up, um, once I went to middle school, I had a really hard time. It was like all these kids I was really close friends with in elementary school kind of turned on me and I became a target. And um, I didn't eat lunch in the lunchroom anymore because they were bully me and put me in the trash can and make fun of me. And and um, so eventually I started eating lunch by myself upstairs in a classroom because I just couldn't bear to go down into the cafeteria anymore because I was just so afraid of getting picked on and, and put down and bullied. Um, so what ended up happening was I ended up changing high schools, or I'm sorry, school systems. And I went to a private um, high school after eighth grade and I felt like, you know, the reason why I was made fun of and put down so badly was because I wasn't, I didn't fit in because I wasn't drinking and I wasn't, you know, smoking weed. So I started to engage in those, um, behaviors and started to put those substances into my body, uh, before I went to this new school and I reinvented myself as a result. And it very much was a solution for me at first. And then it turned very quickly into a serious, serious problem. And by the time I had uh, graduated high school, I was a heroin addict um, using on a daily basis. Wow. And yeah, so, um, but before, you know, any of that stuff happened, like the video games, I, w- I would go home and, and play video games all the time in middle school because very similar to you, like it was something that I could control, you know, and I could escape. And, you know, it was like the safe place for me, you know? So... Um, that was kind of with me all throughout my um, my journey into addiction with substances. And then also, even, you know, after I got sober, like, you know, I still played a lot of video games. And eventually, like, I got to this point where I'm like, you know, I'm sober now X amount of years. And I would stay home and I'd call out a sick work and, and play video games all day. And then, you know, on the weekends... I'd play video games and stay up really late and eat really bad foods. And there just came a day when I was like, man, I'm, you know, I am not being productive at all. 
it, it literally is like the same thing over and over and over again for these games. And I just made a decision to bring everything to GameStop and sell all of it. And, you know, after that happened, that, that was a few years back now. Um, after I sold those video games and everything that I had, um, I went to my brother's house, who's, st- he's, you know, he's an active gamer. And I sat down on the couch. No one was there. I, I turned the, the uh, console on and started to play Call of Duty. And, you know, whatever had happened um, between when I sold them and that time, like, the allure wasn't there anymore. And I turned it off after about 10 minutes. And I haven't played since. So it's interesting because, you know, one of the questions to kind of go back to the start for me around, you know, the bullying I went through was, you know, I never really got clarity on on why me, right? Why did that happen to me? It was kind of, you know, I have some inclinations of, you know, I, I have an aura of confidence and, and sometimes that can be triggering for people. And, you know, I was smaller and it was easy to kind of, I was an easy target because I would kind of fight back and not really take it. And so for you, it sounds like you were kind of being bullied because you, you didn't fit in. And, yeah. and that kind of led you to this place of wanting to fit in. And especially around those ages, you know, like high school is, is a really interesting time for us because high school is all based on social status, but only in high school. Because once you leave high school, that same mentality is not there anymore. It's a lot more about what you can contribute and what value you can really bring in a lot of different ways, not just socially. So it's interesting that that kind of started from a place of, of you being, you having a desire to fit in. And so did that begin just like you were smoking pot and then that kind of quickly went to, to you exploring other things or like how did that whole thing kind of begin? Yeah, so I... um you know, as to why I was, I, I was the one that they picked on. I feel like I really kind of, I wanted to fit in so bad cam. I would have done anything, you know, like I subjected myself to, um, the group of people that I just really wanted to be around, even though like they would just constantly, it was so bad, you know? Um, and there were so many other people I could have hung out with, but I, I don't know, I was just lost, you know? So, um, so yeah, I started to, for whatever reason, like my thinking was that the reason why I don't fit in is because I would not smoke weed. I would not drink. And, you know, um, I thought that if I started to do those things and change school districts that I would be accepted, I might have the popularity I really desired. And, um, so again, like (laughs) I started to, to drink and I started to, to, to smoke weed on a very regular basis at, you know, a very young age, um, the summer leading into ninth grade. And when I went to that school, like I was a different person, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and you mentioned about, uh, social status. Like I couldn't see past Friday night, you know, like I was just, I was just like, I just wanted to be on the scene all the time, be at the party all the time. Like I, when, when everyone was a senior in high school, and even a junior, when people are looking at colleges, like I wasn't there, you know, like I, I was, I was looking for where the party was, you know? So, um, it very quickly turned into a, uh, daily use and I became very dependent on substances and I hadn't, I didn't even know, you know, I had no idea 
mm-hmm. you know, I, I would um, eventually when it when things got harder, like, you know, I'm hanging around with these these group of kids, like, um, I fit in, and, you know, harder harder things come out. People start, you know, bringing out ecstasy and and cocaine and and all at different you know d- different times. But you know, I tried in high school on school grounds. I tried a number of drugs for the first time. Um, you know, and eventually like things just progressed and I started using, um, you know, even harder drugs. I got into heroin and once, once I found that it was, it was all over for me, you know? And again, like I was the last one to find out that I had a real problem, you know, I, I, and I'm not even kidding when I say this, like I had no idea why I felt the way I felt when I woke up and I was physically ill, you know, why my body ached and why I would sweat you know, when I didn't have, um, the substances, I had no clue. I had to get educated on, on that. And the way I got educated was hanging around with, um, other people that were doing the same things and they would talk about being sick. And then I would, I could relate to that and I could identify that that's the way I felt. And now, now I knew that the reason I'm feeling the way I'm feeling is because I'm physically sick because I've been separated from the substances for X amount of hours. Wow. And then the cycle just repeats, you know, over and over and over again. So was that the kind of main source of negative impact that you were kind of experiencing in your life that that began to kind of help you develop that awareness of that you're having a problem? Was you were feeling like physically sick or was there kind of other negative impact happening like in relationships and maybe with school or work or? Everything. So that's a great question. So in the, in the world of, drug addiction and and alcoholism, everything in life gets annihilated. You know, um, sometimes it's slowly, sometimes it's like a sprint, you know, so my relationships, um, they were affected girlfriends and it, and it goes, it goes much deeper than just like the initial contact. Right. So like my girlfriend, like there would be, uh, many times where, um, we would fight or, I was constantly lying and manipulating to protect my disease and it not only affected her, but it would affect people in her life because it would manifest in, in ways, um, for her emotionally, physically, um, and the way she showed up into her relationships with her parents or her siblings or, you know, her work, not being able to show up to work because she's got to come, um, you know, bail me out of a bad situation or, being irritated or angry because of the way I'm treating her or losing weight because she's so sick um, that she can't eat because of my, the condition I'm in and I'm back in treatment again for the X amount of, you know, X amount of time. So that's just one facet. Um, as far as work goes, employment, I'm a guy that's barely graduated high school, you know, so I always, you know, I went to college a couple times in different states because I always thought moving would be the answer. Oh, if I moved to Florida and got away from Concord, New Hampshire, where I'm from, I'll be able to kick the kick the drugs and I'll be able to go to college and get a job and have a different life. And the problem was everywhere I went, whether it was Florida, New York, or a local college, everywhere I went, there I was. You know, so and I didn't have any any type of solution. So I never had a job. I never finished anything. Um, 
I was unemployable. The jobs I did have, I would always ask to get paid cash at the end of the day. And then I wouldn't show up for a couple of days. Uh, as far as the relationships went with my parents, my mother uh, only let me sleep at the house at night so she knew that I was alive. And if my dad had it his way, I wouldn't have been allowed on his property. You know, so, um, so I just named a few areas there, school work, my relationships, my health as well. I was, I'm five, nine and my ideal weight should be like, you know, 195, 190. And when I got sober at the age of 25, I'm 34 now, I weighed 150 pounds and I was just like skin and bones, you know? So my health, my physical health, um, you know, was very poor. I was not taking care of myself at all. Um, you know, and at that stage of the game, 25, I'd been using IV. IV. Um, that's how I was in, ingesting the drugs into my system was through needles. Um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> physically speaking, I was very unhealthy. Spiritually speaking, I was bankrupt. Morally speaking, I had no values. I was, all, all that stuff was just out the window, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, to answer your question, like it affected everything in my life. Everything. And when was the moment where you, you began to seek help? Because I, I know you, you, know, you, you mentioned you, you went to treatment a few times. And you know, I know from our conversation you know, we had on the phone before this that you know, there was a time eventually that you, know, you found the miracle morning and, and that really started to transform things. And we'll get more into that later. But what was kind of the process for you of, of beginning to realize like, okay, you know, I'm in this position, I'm sick, I'm, I'm not feeling good, it's, it's beginning to affect other areas of my life and I need to kind of make some changes. Uh, take us through what that kind of looked like initially and, and eventually kind of where did that, that come to today? It's it's funny, man. I I um, I think this is very common for most people um, that struggle with substance abuse disorder. Is they don't want to get. Oftentimes, they don't think they have a problem. Or speak for myself, I didn't think I had a problem. And when I did start to realize, like, okay, think things are a little bit unmanageable. I'm I seem to be powerless over my decision making. I have no control when I put something in my body. Um, maybe I should get some help. But that thought of reason would kind of be, it would it'd be fleeting. And I would always have to be forced into it. You know, like things would have to really hit the fan. And, and then I would ultimately say yes and go. But I always thought I could control it on my own most of the time. And I would make, the, I would make these firm resolutions that, okay, tomorrow I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get loaded today, but tomorrow I'm going to stop. And, and today's going to be my last day. I'm going to give this my dad the money that I owe him. I'm going to tell my girlfriend that I'm done. I'm going to start making different decisions tomorrow. It's always tomorrow. It was never today. And um, tomorrow would always come. I would feel physically sick. I would have this obsessive mind that was constantly saying, you need to get loaded, you need to get loaded, just repetitive, reoccurring thought that doesn't respond to any logic or any reason. And, you know, I would pick up again. So... What happened uh, the first time was in 2006, uh, you know, things had kind of spiraled out of control. My parents found out what was going on. I was um, 2006, so I was 20, or I'm sorry, 
that. I was 23 years old and I went to treatment for the first time, inpatient treatment. I had been in outpatient treatment before and I went to a uh, 30-day program. My parents were like, listen, you need to get help. We know what's going on. And they, they knew a little bit. They didn't know what was really going on. They knew that I was um, using drugs. They didn't know how I was using them and they didn't know really how bad my disease was. And um, you need to go to treatment or else you can't, you know, stay at the house and we're not going to have anything to do with you. So I said, okay, I'll go. And I went in, I remember, you know, these times are dark. They're very dark. And for a guy that I felt like, I felt like even though I would tell myself every day I'm going to be done, I always, I still always felt I could control it and I was going to stop if I wanted to. And I just never could, I could never kind of wrap my head around it. Um, so I went to treatment I was there for, I think, a total of 34 days. And the same thing happened, Cam, that happened when I was in middle school. You know, I'm 23 years old. I wanted to fit in, you know. So, like, the group of people that I was at treatment with, I wanted to fit in with them. They weren't bullying me and picking on me or anything like that. They accept, they accepted me. I was part of, you know, um, the group. Um, but when I left there, instead of getting connected to um, – a group of people that were in meetings and, and had some long-term sobriety and had done this thing before. Um, I left there and I went and hung out with all of these people that were newly sober. And, you know, I hadn't taken care of the um, mental part of my disease. And I still had that obsessive mind that still wanted to, to use. And that still thought that, oh, I've been sober now for 34 days. I can probably drink in safety so why don't we try that? You know, as long as I stay away from the heroin, I'm okay. And I drank that day when I got out of, out of rehab. And I think within two weeks, I was back to shooting heroin and cocaine. Um, so that type of thing happened for the next couple of years. I'd go to treatment. I'd get sober for a little bit. Um, I might, you know, not drink or use for a couple of weeks on my own. Um, but I could never stay stopped, you know, and... You know, to, to fast forward to what happened the last time was, it was May 10th, you know, my parents, this was 2008, so in two years, I had been to five different treatment centers, I'd been to outpatient detoxes, I'd been to lots of different 12-step meetings, and in my mind, nothing worked, but I, if I'm being honest, I'll tell you that. I never put any. I never put any real effort into staying sober. Uh, you could say I, I I put half measures into it, and I got half measures results. So in two thousand eight, May tenth, um, things really came to the surface. My parents found out exactly what was going on with me. Um, they found my works, and they um, they said, "Listen, this is the last straw. Like, you need to get help." or else we're done with you. So I always get a little emotional at this part. So, um, you know, like I said, okay, you know, I'll go get help again. And, you know, my parents went to bed and it was late at night and I had a lot of, you know, I had a, a lot of substances and I went into my room. I wrote a note to my parents and said, you know, this, this isn't your fault. I just don't know how I'm ever going to beat this disease. And you guys have been 
amazing parents and have done the best you could do and have raised me with morals and values and and lots of love and i just don't think i'm ever going to be able to do anything with myself and i'm sorry <sighs> you know and i wrote that note and i left it on the um my dresser and i took all of those the drugs that i had and i had injected them into my veins and i laid on my bed and i was expecting to overdose but i didn't overdose i woke up the next morning and my parents had not come into my room the note was still exactly where i'd placed it and i grabbed the note off of the um the dresser and i I think I brought it with me to, to treatment because I didn't want them to see it and find it and to see what I tried to do. And on Mother's Day, May 11, 2008, my mom and my dad brought me to treatment for, um, for what I hope to be the last time. And I've had continuous, uninterrupted sobriety since that date until present time. Wow. Wow, thanks so much for sharing, man. I know... One of the difficult things about actually making that shift, a lot of people listening to this will relate a lot to just relapsing over and over and over and over and, and being in that struggle of, will I ever finally beat this? Will I ever actually get to that point where I can truly move forward in my life? Or am I going to constantly just be relapsing and failing and you know going through that shame cycle that happens inevitably after it? And I know for you, you mentioned something to me that was really powerful, which was you know, there, there was a shift for you at some point where you went from being apathetic about life, not really giving a fuck, you know, not really feeling excited to actually living your life from a place of being excited about life and really trying to move forward. And so when, when did that happen and, and how important do you think that is for someone to, to make that shift? So that happened. So I went to treatment May 11th, 2008, and that happened a few days after. So initially I went to treatment and I just wanted to go for two weeks longer than the last facility I was at, which was two months prior in March. I was at one like over St. Patrick's Day weekend and on St. Patrick's Day, I'm like, I'm out of here. This place has nothing to offer me. I'm not as bad as these people. And I bounced. I just walked out the front door. And so I'm back in rehab again. Two months later, Mother's Day, a few days go by, I clear up. And I'm like, you know, I, I have this God-inspired thought just enter my consciousness. And the thought was, and I shared this with you the other day, the thought was, why don't you do something different than you've done every single time trying to get sober before? So I'm like, okay. I accepted the thought. It was a, The universe was speaking to me. And so I accepted that thought and said, okay, I'm going to do everything different. So I'm going to go to lots of meetings. I'm going to get a sponsor. I'm going to do the, I'm going to, pray you know i never had a relationship with with a higher power um i'm gonna get phone numbers i'm gonna engage in groups i'm gonna let people know who i am you know so basically i'm gonna start showing up for my recovery is what all that means and i started to to get a little bit i started to feel a little bit better you know and then i started to take things a step further and the way i did that was before, before I had gotten sober as well, I, I think this is important to share. One of my friends who, he gave me this book and it was called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And I loved this book. And I would read this book even when I was all strung out. 
So I ha- I did have interest in in um, personal growth and development. I had interest in spiritual principles. I I um, you know I did have some kind of a desire to you know learn and grow and live by live in the present moment and to have a certain faith. Um, so my mom got me this book, You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay, and it was all about positive affirmations. So after I had that God-inspired thought and started to take a lot of different actions, I started to stack up even more actions. And we talked about this the other day. I started to set goals for myself. Now, you have to realize, like, I'm in treatment again. I weigh 150 pounds. I don't have anything. I literally own nothing. (laughs) I don't have a job. I have no college education. I barely graduated high school. I've got nothing. And I have really... I have a really low self-esteem. I have a poor self-image of who I am as an individual. And um, I start to set goals for myself. And these books, The Power of Now and You Can Heal Your Life by Louise L. Hay, um, which was all about positive affirmations, I started to read that book specifically. And I started to practice the principles in that book. And I started to feel good about myself. So I'd look in the mirror and I would say, um, I am adequate today. I am good enough. I can be a productive member of society. I can stay sober one day at a time. Just simple affirmations. And I'd look at myself in the mirror and I'd also write them down as well. And um, I started to feel better, you know? So I started to set goals of things that I wanted to achieve. You know, I'd never done that before. And I started to journal every single day. I would write, I would write in the morning, I'd write at night. And I would write about everything, you name it, what I ate, who I talked to, what I heard at a meeting, what I read out of a book, a letter that I got from my girlfriend at the time. I would journal all of it. And it was a really great way to creatively express myself and to get thoughts out of my head and onto paper. Um, And I would also write about, you know, if I was having certain cravings or how I was feeling, whatever, I would put it all down. And that was awesome. And I did that for like two years straight. And then I got away from that. And, I, and we'll get into that later. I got away from that. And then I found the Miracle Morning years later. Um, so journaling, I would also write gratitude. I would exercise my mind to feel gratitude, which, you know, at that time in my life, again, treatment, things weren't going too hot, but I would still always try to find the good. And oftentimes then, like, you know, I'd burnt my life to the ground and I would just be grateful that I had a bed to sleep in or that the treatment center I was at provided meals for us or, you know, I had clothes with me, you know, simple things, you know, there's, there's gratitude in, 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 in the simple things. Um, I would read books. I would work out at the gym, you know, I would pray and all of these actions started to drive different results and different emotions and different feelings. And I started to change very quickly. And it was noticeable. Like I didn't, I didn't even notice it, you know, for me, like it's hard, it's hard on the inside to notice how I, how I look on the outside. You know, I know I felt better. I know my life was starting to improve and I was in treatment for almost 90 days. Um, but people that I was in there with really started to kind of look up to me and those desires that I had to fit in and the, the, like, I, the, the, like 
the need and the want to like fit in and and be a part of really just kind of fell fell to the wayside because I was growing in confidence in who I was as an individual, and I was starting to contribute um, just by showing up to life in a different way for other people, you know. And my parents really started to notice um, differences in 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 my character and just who I was as a son, who I was as a brother. And, um, you know, it, it really was like this spark that ignited me on a different path. And I haven't looked back since, you know, so, um, you had mentioned the miracle morning, what a great book that is. And it wasn't around back then. I think Hal was, was probably in the process of launching it or writing it in 2008. He might've launched it in 2008. I didn't know about the book until about a year and a half ago, but a lot of the principles and practices that are in that book were critical for me, as I just described, when I first got sober. Journaling, positive affirmations, reading, exercise, um, silence is one of them, but I wasn't meditating back then. I was praying and visualizing is... um, the last piece of the savers routine. I wasn't doing that either, but I was doing five, you know, five out of six. Um, and it was a game changer for me. I, I, I believe that the positive affirmations and, and the goal setting and all of the, the, the things that I were doing literally, um, changed the trajectory of my life. Do you think goal setting was so important because it gave you something else to focus on instead of just, okay, I'm not, drinking or i'm not doing drugs but i'm not doing anything else either do you think goal setting kind of allowed you to like have some focus and purpose and structure around your time and and what you needed to be putting your energy into which kind of allowed you to to because your goals were also focused on developing you know good healthy habits also allowed you to then have space and time for for your life to really be begin to improve which then you feel that and it kind of develops this like positive feedback loop yeah, definitely. So setting goals, like, again, I had never done it before, and I started to. And the goals were very basic in nature, you know? So, like, one of my goals would be go to two meetings today, call three people in the program, um, look for a job, you know? Like, just a few goals, you know? And I do would do them daily. And I would also even map out you know, like what I would like to achieve in the next month and then the next three months and then the next six months. So that's how I initially did them when I first got sober. But yeah, it gave me something to work towards. So my, I would focus on how am I going to do this? Right. And I would also keep it simple as such as like, you know, go to or reach out to five different places of employment and fill out an application, right? And then follow up with them in X amount of days. So I would keep it simple and stack them up, but there ultimately there was a longer term uh, goal. But I'll tell you, like once I started to do that and put my attention there, all of those goals were achieved at one time or another. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really amazing, you know? Um, what we focus on expands, you know, and yeah, it was a, it's unbelievable. You know, once I started to do all of these simple practices, like my mom also, you know, uh, she was into like the secret and stuff and, and, uh, Jerry and Esther Hicks, um, asking it as given as a book that they wrote. It's phenomenal. 
Um, so like I was into all of these things at, you know, 25 years old and I, and I, they had depth and weight and I believed in them, you know? Um, so, you know, I just had faith that it would all work, you know, and, and it has, <laughs> it's really, it's really so simple. Um, and so basic and, you know, I have friends that don't think that these things work, but I'm a, I'm a true believer because my life is proof, you know? So creating goals and, and developing habits around achieving goals. And also we talked about, well, briefly brought up, um, having a network of support in your life in the beginning of the uh, podcast. Um, developing a core group of, of like-minded individuals that are on the same path that literally I attracted into my life, right? I found them, they found me and it's not a coincidence. Um, that has helped me achieve my goals as well. Right. And I know for a lot of people listening to this, you may feel adverse to goal setting, right? There, there's this kind of mindset, Pete, I'm curious if, if maybe you, you had this as well, but when we're going through, you know, addiction challenges or, or we're not really kind of pursuing our life, we tend to think goal setting is this like sham, right? It's like this weird thing that other people do, but like we're too cool to do that, you know, or, or our egos are too caught up in ourselves to be able to actually like set goals and, and really have to have to actually then prove to ourselves that we can actually achieve them, right? And for me, a lot of, you know, your story resonates with me because, you know, I too wrote a suicide note and and did so in a way where the the change in my life happened that night because I realized that if I wasn't going to end my life, I had to do the complete opposite, which was to truly live it to the fullest and truly see, you know, could I realize my potential? Could I, you know, what could I achieve if I actually applied my talents, all the energy and focus and skills I had to actually achieving my dreams? And dedicate everything to it. And, and you know, that was like nine years ago and I haven't stopped since. But initially, all I knew was the only goal I had and, and something I want to kind of share with everyone listening is when you're starting out goal setting, you have to start with just low hanging fruit and allow, start with something small and allow your momentum as you, you know, achieve goals and, and develop goals to then inspire what's next. So for me, that was, I want to improve my social skills, right? I, I had been bullied a lot. I didn't really understand why half the people I met seemed to like me and half the people seemed to not. And I really wanted to figure out, you know, how I could actually connect with people. And that's really, that was the original goal I had. And quitting gaming was just a function of that because I knew if I was going to improve my social skills, I couldn't continue the game. Because if I was gaming, I would just stay home all day and, and game and not actually go out to meet people. So I started with social skills. And then after that, you know, some goals, it was like I started learning how to DJ. I started uh, my own business, right? Now, you know, surfing and, and traveling and all these different things are, are part of what I'm, what I'm up to. But you have to start with low-hanging fruit. And one of the best ways I think that, you know, anyone listening to this can start is with The Miracle Morning. So that's a book by Hal Elrod. Uh, Brianna, who also helped with that book, was who connected Pete and I. And we're big fans. Uh, my friend Teresa is intimately involved with, with that group as well. And the Miracle Morning is all about starting a morning routine. And starting a morning routine where it's filled with different good habits that are scientifically proven to actually help you feel great. And what's amazing is when you win the morning, 
that momentum then carries out throughout the rest of your day. So an interesting thing happens when you're trying to make a change in your life or maybe you're trying to overcome an addiction or, or some other challenge. The, day one is the day that your cravings and withdrawal symptoms and challenges that you're having will be the most intense. And yet, because of that, your level of competence that you need in the skill of, of just being able to like survive the day and, and, and live a good life is at its highest. Right, or it's it's lowest in the moment, but like your need for it is at that the highest point. And structure is the solution to that. Right? Structure is the solution because a lot of your habits are unconscious or they're just, you know, um, they're they're what you automatically do, right? You, you don't even have to think about them. They're just natural. They're they're on autopilot. And so if you want to switch them, you have to begin to actually bring more focus and attention to them. You have to bring structure. So the Miracle Morning is a great way you can do that. And it's really just starting your day with different habits, whether it's visualization, gratitude, silence, like meditation, exercise, you know, reading. Any of those are, are really good or all of them are really good. And what I would encourage everyone listening to this to start with is, you know, try it for 30 days. Try Miracle Morning for 30 days. Start there and see how you feel. And I bet you'll find that as you win the morning, that encourages you or, or gives you momentum to then win the afternoon and to then win the evening and to win the day. And as you win the day, day after day after day, that's really where this amazing life comes from, right? So whether it's a challenge I'm experiencing now or a challenge I experienced last year or in the future, I always am really just focused on, you know, how can I have a good morning? because I know that that's going to then lead me to being able to have a good day. And having a good day leads to a good week, a good month, a good year. And it really does happen one day at a time, as cliche as that is. That's amazing, you just got me all fired up. And to add and build onto that, how many people you affect as a result of starting your day off with a miracle morning, right? How you show up in this really positive way and really just affect the lives of anybody you come into contact with. And to take it even further, like, how many people, like for me, my friends, I share what I do with with all of my buddies, you know? And there's so many people in the Concord area that now do Miracle Morning on a daily basis, you know? And it's like this, this broadening, widening thing that's happening, you know? Not just here, but everywhere that, that people are engaging in the Miracle Morning on a, on a daily basis. I know a lot of people listening to this are, are going to feel some sort of adversity to just 12-step programs. And, and meetings and, and, you know, that whole kind of environment. And I know that that environment can be a fantastic way for you to meet new people, especially initially as, as you're kind of getting going. Because, you know, it, it, it's tough when, when you are making a big change in your life, you're going to experience that in your social circle, right? Because your external environment is really a reflection of yourself. And if you're making a big change, your friends and relationships and all this stuff is also going to change and that can be difficult. So for you, you know, what kind of suggestions would you have for people who are looking to, to change their support system? And, and, you know, for people who maybe feel a bit adverse to 12 step programs or sponsors or going to meetings, you know, what kind of perspective could you share with them that would maybe inspire them to think differently? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, like, I did not want to do the 12 step thing at all. I was like just completely against it. Thought it was the worst thing that could happen to me was to, uh, you know, go to 
a 12 step, you know, program at all. Um, well, there's many different pathways, you know, there's no one trick pony. There's no, there's no one way to, um, to change. So, you know, there's online support groups. So you, you actually are the founder of game quitters. So there's, there's one there, um, amongst, you know, how many other thousands of groups are there? There's, there's, there's many. And for me, like I was afraid to go to these groups that you go to physically, you physically go to them and they're, they have them all over the world at many, many different times a day. And they're not just AA meetings or NA meetings, but they have them for sex addicts. They have them for gambling. They have them now, um, for, uh, people that are cigarette smokers. So they have them for overeaters, you know, um, I don't think there is a 12 step group for, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong, Cam, for, um, gaming addiction. And if there isn't, I'm not surprised. I'm not, I'm surprised that there isn't. Um, do you know if there are? There, there are online. Uh, so there's CGAA, there's Olganon. There are some online, but they're not really available in person yet. And most of the time, if, if you search for, or, or if you seek out help for video game addiction in person, uh, you're going to be recommended to go to the GA meeting. So that's Gamblers Anonymous. And, you know, what I'll say is this. Members of ours who have gone to GA meetings have have always reported that they felt very welcome and they felt uh, very accepted and, and they felt like they were able to get a lot of support, which is great. And I also know a lot of members have reported that, you know, when they went to find a 12-step program and, you know, were recommended to GA, maybe that felt like their problem wasn't as important or that uh, they didn't feel as accepted because there wasn't a specific program for video game addiction and i totally hear that and you know we're we're working on different things of being able to to shift that you know even if that's just empowering members to kind of start groups in their local areas uh, and the online component you know is available obviously gamecores.com and there's a lot of support available in the forums and on reddit on stop gaming and so there is a lot of support available, but uh, there is a lot of work to remain to be done for in-person meetings. No, it'd be very easy to start one of those meetings um, if you follow the same format as, you know, like say an AA meeting where you meet in, um, oftentimes there are church basements or community centers or, you know, local treatment centers, or now they have these things that are uh, recovery community centers where some of them have meetings around the clock, you know, and they're not just AA or NA or GA or SA, but you could have like, um, they do yoga, they do all types of things, skill building, resume building for people, um, that are coming out of those dark, dark places that are trying to improve and build upon, uh, their life in a new way. Um, I think it's really important to, um, have a group of, of, friends that can hold you accountable and that you can report your progress to and, and share your goals with and your wins with and, and your struggles with and have a positive group of friends that are supporting, loving, embracing, and that are, you know, trying to walk the same path. For me, um, you know, with the, with the pornography thing, I have five men that I talk to legitimately on a daily basis that are all, um, you know, walking walking the same same road and we check in you know with how we're feeling with how we're doing um and you know i'm 
I'm happy to report that, you know, every one of those men are doing really, really well. And, um, you know, sometimes when the urge comes or the, you know, the craving hits, oftentimes it's, it's as simple as just checking in and saying, Hey, this is where I'm at. Um, does anybody have any suggestions, you know, and then, you know, the other four guys will throw in, you know, their suggestions, you know, of, of what, what actions they could take, um, to, um, you know, overcome that, that, that moment of weakness. And I'll share with you a couple of those actionable steps. So, um, are you into cold showers at all, Cam? I have been. I surf, so I, I try to take cold showers just so that, you know, when I go surfing, I'm not such a wimp. <laughs> so, so that's awesome. And um, so one of the things that is recommended, like when that, when you feel like, you know, you want to pick up or use or, you know, you're fighting that mental obsession, which I think is a common component of any addiction, right? That mental component, that, that obsessive, uh, repetitive, reoccurring thought of, I want to do this. I got to do this. I need this, whatever it is. Um, so take a cold shower and it totally changes your state up for me. Like I get into a cold shower and I feel like I am unstoppable. You know, I start, I start, you know, throwing punches at the water and I just get really pumped up and, and it totally changes my energy, totally changes my state. Um, and there's a lot of health benefits too. You could Google benefits of a cold shower and you'd find a lot of different things on, on the internet. Um, Tony Robbins priming is another, uh, example of a practice that can change your state up. And it's really just a way to, um, experience gratitude and relive some, some moments in your past. And also think about, reflect upon some things that you'd like to, um, you know, do in the future. And it's, it's about a 14 minute practice. You can find that on his uh, website. Um, you know, Prayer meditation is a big one. It's huge. Uh, take a time out, get connected to some stillness. So yeah, so those are a few suggestions that that we'll throw out. The biggest, one of the biggest um, ways to get out of your own head and stop feeling the way you're feeling when you're triggered to use whatever it is, whatever the whatever the um, substance is, or whatever, um, whether it's video games or pornography or drugs and alcohol is, um, if, and I'm, I'm saying this in a, in a context of with some sobriety under your belt, right? So with some time under your belt, whether it's two weeks or two years is to go and help somebody else, right? Yeah. Like go, go and be of service in a way, you know, it's, it, it's so critical. So that they say like in the 12 step meetings that I run in that nothing will ensure immunity, right? Immunity, very powerful word from, from drinking, Nothing will ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with others, right? So I've helped thousands of people in sobriety through conversations, through speaking uh, commitments, through one-on-one -on -one work, taking people through a process um, to restore them to mind, body, and spirit. Um, and I've also had a lot of experience falling flat on my face, right? And with its life, you know, so there are certain trials, there's highs and there's lows. And through the low spots, um, when I've fallen flat on my face and, and things haven't been going so hot, what I have done by, you know, by the grace of God is helped other people. And it totally, you know, 
when I think I have problems and I go and help somebody that really has problems, my problems really aren't that big a deal, you know? So, um, being of service and, and helping others is such a key point of, uh, recovery. You know, it's, it's it goes hand in hand. I definitely agree. And for people listening, you know, game quitters has helped me more than it's helped anybody else. You know, there, there's been tough times, you know, feeling depressed or, or whatever, you know, you go through adversity in life. And over the last couple of years, there's been times like that for me. And, even, you know, even this past week was like that for me, you know, difficult week. And being able to wake up every day and contribute to the community and be able to support other people and come from a place of service in my life has brought so much purpose for me and, and given me so much that it, it's given me more than anybody else. And, yep. and it's really helped me, you know, in, in ways that, that I'm unable to articulate. Uh, so, you know, I love I love that being able to, in those moments when you're making it all about yourself, make it about somebody else, go serve somebody else, go ask how you can help them. And coming from contribution in your life in that way will make a huge difference. And I can only speak to that from personal experience. I want to go back to developing a, a social support system because there's something really important that I want to kind of bring to everyone's awareness. And that's coming to agreements with different people in your life, right? So for you with that group, you know, around pornography, you guys have this this container set, this agreement amongst each other that you can be open and, and honest and talk about whatever is coming up. And that container is so important because it, it gives you space to then be able to step into it. And so in my life, I do this in a couple different ways. You know, obviously I have different groups I'm a part of and things like that. But I also just have certain friends in my life who we have had verbal agreements. We've actually spoken about this that, hey, if you're feeling super emotional or, or you're feeling anything or you need to get anything off your chest or, or actually anything at all, you can reach out to me anytime and I'll hold space for you. So as an example, you know, just yesterday, I, I texted my friend Ginger, who has been a guest on, on the YouTube channel a number of times. And I said... I'm feeling annoyed and frustrated, so I'm texting you about it. And she said, you know, bring it on, fully received. And for me, you know, she asked me what I was frustrated about, I told her. And, and for me, I wasn't looking for advice. I wasn't looking for, you know, anything else other than me being able to speak about it and, and to let it out allowed me to release it. And instantly I felt better. You know, I have another friend, Sarah, who, again, anytime I'm feeling any way, I can just message her and, and she'll be there to hold that space. Again, not that I'm looking for advice, but just looking for someone to kind of share it with. And so for anyone listening to this, if you don't have those agreements in your life right now, I'd highly encourage you to develop them. Talk to your roommate, talk to your parents, talk to a friend, talk to a cousin, talk to someone that you trust or you believe in you feel like is reliable and have a conversation and say, hey, look, I feel like support's really important. I wanna support you. And so let's make this agreement that, you know, at any point you can message me about, you know, any emotion you're feeling or, or anything at all. And, and I'll be there to just hold space for you and vice versa. And having that just is such a game changer and being able to speak about it and actually form like a, an actual formal agreement that this is something that you will do for each other really makes it a lot safer for you to then feel like you're able to reach out instead of kind of like, oh, maybe I'm burdening my friends with my shit. 
you know, instead of like, you, you need those relationships who, who can support you in those moments when you need it, right? So for anyone listening, I would just encourage you, whether, if you don't have those right now, look on the Game Quarters forum, check out Discord and, and the Stop Gaming server, check out Stop Gaming on Reddit, you know, and pull out the post. Hey, I'm looking for some people who, who can be accountability partners. I'm looking for people who, you know, we can just share openly with and have those relationships with and, and have those conversations because having the space for that really is, is so, so important. I can't recommend it enough. And it's not easy. It's not easy to be open about your emotions. It's not easy to be open about the challenges that you're having. But when you have a container set where that's acceptable and it's not coming from a place of judgment, that, in my experience, has made it a lot easier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, becoming vulnerable and being open-minded and willing to just kind of be authentic and where you're at is so critical. And I love what you said about you weren't looking for advice. You could just talk, you know, and just share. And um, I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, one thing I want to mention real quick is you, you had stated um, a little while back that some of the listeners would be kind of adverse to um, setting goals. And I just want to <clears throat> share, you know, it was brought to my attention early on from a, a man that I respected and, and looked up to. He said to me, how, how well do you want to be? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, how, how free do you want to be? And I said, I'm not, I don't follow you. And he goes, what steps are you willing to take? What actions are you willing to take? And what goals are you willing to set to be free from, you know, your addictions? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'm like, holy cow. You know, so um, the stuff that we had talked about on this call earlier about setting goals and, and taking different actions, it might seem like scary or it might seem like, oh, this isn't going to work. That, that was my that was whole, my whole thing was this is stupid. I'm not doing this. You know, like, what are you going to share with me that I, I thought I knew it all, you know, um, but there was there was power in action. You know, and there's power in all of it, and it has just changed my life, my life, and and so many other people's lives that I know. So, I just wanted to share that real quick that there is power in in, in uh, the process of setting goals and taking different actions. It's about letting go. It's about letting go of your ego when when you're when you don't want to do the things that actually help you get to where you want to be. It's it's all about ego, and I struggled a lot with that and. Ultimately, what I realized was, do I want results or do I want the credit? And I actually didn't really care about the credit. I just wanted the results. And because of that, that allowed me to focus on, okay, what can I do that will actually help me get there? I remember there was a point where I was super depressed, like super depressed, super suicidal, all of it. And I was like, also completely adverse at the time to doing meditation and exercise and gratitude and all these things that just happened to be scientifically proven to make you happier. And I just had this moment where I was like, do I actually want to be happy? And of course the answer was yes. And then it was simple. Then do the shit that's scientifically proven to help you feel happier. And the rest will take care of itself. And at that point it wasn't about my ego. It didn't matter anymore. It was just, do I want to be happy? Do I want the result? And so anyone listening, you know, what results do you want in your life? And are you aligning your behavior with what is proven to actually help you get there? 
And if not, why? What's holding you back? Dig into that. Is it a fear? Is it something else? Is it your ego? Because a lot of magic can happen when you start to actually investigate that. Uh, so, you know, tons of good stuff in this episode. Pete, really appreciate you being here. And, you know, any final words? And, and can you let people know where to find you? Um, you can find me on Facebook, Peter Marson Jr. Uh, my final words, I guess, would be, well, first of all, Cam, thank you for having me on. This has been amazing. And I'm really honored and blessed to um, be a part of this. And I think what you're doing is amazing. And the last thing I, I want to say is you had, you had talked about how you have received so much from the community, right? And you, you've created the community and you've added so much value to how many, how many other lives, you know, like how, when you think about it, how many lives could you even calculate it, right? Because of it, of the stemming effect that happens, right? The ripple effect of the one direct person that you've, you've helped with the value that you add through game quitters and everything you're doing. So I want to sh share with this, uh, sh end with this is there's a guy I've heard him say it so many times, but he says, I came here to get, I stay here to give and it's in giving that I receive, right? So if you haven't read the book, The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, one of my favorite books, um, we live by universal laws. And no man, no person can genuinely give without receiving. You know, so uh, contribution and giving back and helping others is really kind of the, uh, the glue that holds this whole thing together, in my experience, you know, so... Um, so yeah great way to end the episode and for everyone listening all the books and links and you know etc etc will be on gamequiz.com check the show notes click the podcast tab and, and you'll find everything there and including you know how to connect with Pete and Pete just once again thanks so much for being vulnerable thanks so much for sharing a ton of action, actionable advice in this and you know I think a lot of people are going to be really happy so you know if you're listening let us know what you thought about the episode make sure you leave us a comment if you're on SoundCloud uh, you can also reach out to us on, on Twitter at Cameron Dare or send me an email, cam at gamequarters.com and look forward to, to next week's episode. But for today, that's it for us and hope you guys have a great week. Talk to you guys soon. For full-length episodes of the Game Quitters podcast, be sure to check us out on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash gamequitters or visit us online at www.gamequitters.com.